Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Hi there, how are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and we're back to the Bitcoin Beginner's Guide. And I welcome back Nick Carter to look at FUD surrounded Bitcoin and dispel some myths and truths. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services, and they have kicked this year off with a bang. Zach just announced that BlockFi has raised another huge round to reflect what an amazing year they had last year. $30 million to expand the growth of the company, and I'm very proud to be working with them. With their Saxback credit card and mobile app coming, 2020 is going to be huge. And this is on top of their already market-leading crypto-backed loans, and interest accounts for your Bitcoin, Ether and GUSD, which I'm a customer for and I've just received my latest month's interest. So as I said, it's going to be a massive year for BlockFi. If you are interested in finding out more about what they do, please do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And next up, we have the best exchange in the world. You know who they are, the mighty Kraken. The only place I use to buy and sell Bitcoin, and we have just crossed our first anniversary with Kraken. They've been sponsoring the podcast for a year, so a big shout out and a massive thanks to Jesse for getting behind the show and supporting everything I do. Thanks, man. And it's because of Kraken I can head out around the world. I just recorded a show myself about when I was in Venezuela and what I experienced there, and without their support, I could not do this. It would be too expensive. And Kraken themselves are making it easier and easier for people to onboard into Bitcoin and start trading. Last year, they launched their beautiful mobile-first app, allowing you to trade Bitcoin wherever you are. And this is on top of their already market-leading exchange, OTC desk, and other suite of trading products for you Bitcoin traders out there. They already have industry-leading security and amazing customer service. So there is no better place to trade Bitcoin. If you aren't trading Bitcoin with Kraken, seriously... What are you doing with your life? You want to find out more? Head over to Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. So we are back to the beginner's guide, and I've only got three shows left in this series. And for this episode, I welcome back Nick Carter. And we are looking at something called a FUD, which if you don't know, if you've not heard about it, it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's the FUD that surrounds Bitcoin. So this is Nick's second time in the Beginner's Guide. I didn't really want to have anyone on twice, but Nick really knows his onions around altcoins and he really knows his onions around FUD. He even at one point released the FUD dice, which sadly are no longer available. They will be a collector's item. But if you didn't hear my last show with him, it is episode nine. It's about the history of altcoin failures. Definitely worth checking it out, especially if you're tempted to go out there and start trading some altcoins. You should know about the history. But with the FUD, there was no one else I wanted. So I went back to Nick. I said, come on, man. I know you've already done one, but can you do one more for me? And he did. And he pulled it out of the bag. Now, if you are new to Bitcoin, well, even if you've been around for a while, you're going to see with mainstream media, competing projects, and anti-Bitcoiners like Peter Schiff regularly regurgitate the same myths and untruths and bullshit about Bitcoin. It is common to see articles or hear from traditional finance people that Bitcoin isn't backed by anything, it's a Ponzi scheme, or it's only used by criminals and terrorists. This is the standard bullshit that us Bitcoiners face, and we have to fight. These are the arguments we have to deal with constantly. I even have it with my friends, when I'm like, come on guys, 
Why have you not bought any Bitcoin yet? They will pull one of these out of the bag. And I've always got to fight back and tell them this. But look, if you're new, you might not have your ammo. So this show is for you. This is all about the regular FUD against Bitcoin. So with Nick, we dive into the Bitcoin FUD. We dispel the myths and untruths. So I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions, you know you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Nick, welcome back. Very quick turnaround to come back on the show. Thank you very much. This is my, I think this might be my fourth time now on the show. Yeah, yeah, but the second time in a few weeks. But I ha- look, I had to do this one with you. I originally had you penciled in for this. So I've been working with Hasu on doing some of the planning and we knew we had to have a FUD show and I re- originally had you planned in. And then I had to have you for the history of altcoins, which by the way, was a really popular show. People love that one. All right. Yeah, that was uh, that was a moment that catalyzed me to learn just to refresh my memory on so many of those things. So it's a great moment for me as well. I got to just like do a couple of weeks worth of homework. Fantastic. I also just did my own show. I forced myself to do the recap show. I decided last minute I, I was going to have a go. And it was really interesting being the other side of the mic because I'm happy to answer questions on Bitcoin, but I knew the subjects were going to be technical and you have to hold yourself up to quite a high bar when you're explaining technical items because if you get something wrong, you have a lot of responsibility there. And I didn't enjoy it. I've got to say, I felt very nervous. I don't know how you feel doing these interviews. You seem pretty natural, but I felt very nervous and I don't think I'll I'll do that again. But I did feel it was a useful exercise in filling some gaps in my knowledge because one of the things I realized is that knowing something is one thing, but trying to articulate it and explain it in both an accurate and factual way is, is actually quite difficult. Yeah, that's right. The best way to learn something is to teach it. So, yeah. Anyway, we've done, I think I've done like four, 14 or 15 of these beginners guides now. I've got three shows left. One of them is to cover FUD because one of the things that might happen for new people coming in is they get all excited, they learn a bit about Bitcoin, and they start jumping on Reddit or Twitter, start Googling, and they might end up reading things which could be misleading misinformation so i had to cover this with you because you you did create your uh, legendary fud dice which i know we can't get anymore but you did create your legendary fud dice so you have been down this rabbit hole as well as the alt kind one let's as a starting point though some people might not even know what the meaning of fud is so do you want to explain what fud is first before we start going into it yeah, and I, I maybe I actually don't use the term very much anymore because I sound like a ripple shill when I uh, when if you say <laughs> fud, it's like uh, you know like uh, it's, it's kind of a marker of of someone that it can't accept any criticism whatsoever. But yeah, it stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and it's a term levied at people that issue critiques, you know, typically of financial assets. So if someone is a, if you if you like Tesla stock and someone says you know Elon Musk is a cult of personality and he's going to go to jail for securities fraud you might say that's fud you know so so that's fud fud is um is is some is an accusation you throw at people that you feel are unfairly maligning the asset of your choice do you would you agree though that some items that are thrown as fud or considered fud actually are things that still are worth debating oh yeah 100% yeah i mean I don't want to um, dismiss any critique uh, of Bitcoin. I think we actually should be very self-critical. You know, I think that's that's very very important. There certainly are some items which have been debated ad nauseum. You know, um, 
hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, things that we've covered, which maybe aren't as potent critiques as people might think they are. So uh, maybe you could call those FUD. But uh, yeah, I think generally speaking, being super critical, very introspective is a very good and important thing. So I know, I guess this tone, this show has a lighthearted tone, but I also do, I do want to engage with some of these critiques in a really serious way. Fantastic. Well, we might do on some of these. So I've got a list. Most of it was derived from your FUD dice. I found some nice photos of them online. I managed to figure out some of them from the angles of the the 12-sided dice. Some of them are a couple that I'm aware of that I've thrown in, but let's work through them all. So I'm going to start with one of the most common used criticisms of Bitcoin. And this tends to come, I think, more from no-coiners or people who don't really understand too much about Bitcoin. You tend to see this from the, the bankers and the finance people. But Bitcoin itself has no intrinsic value because there is no central authority. Why is this FUD? Why is that FUD? Okay, so the reason that Bitcoin can't be centrally managed or controlled is is the reason that it exists. Bitcoin is a reaction to centrally administered uh, central banks and, and centrally administered monetary systems. Satoshi has a quote about this. He says, it was the centrally controlled nature of those systems that doomed them, referring to other digital cash schemes. So Bitcoin was meant to be you know, decentralized across many different you know, uh, verticals. So it was meant to be decentralized at the administrative level, at the node level, and at the protocol level. And if there was a critical point of centralization in there, if there was some sort of entity which could be targeted, then presumably governments, which might object to the creation of a new monetary system, would use that as um, a locus of control. You know, they would arrest the founder or arrest whatever entity was managing the system. So Bitcoin, by design, uh, couldn't have a single point of control. And that has meant that uh, some things are a little bit more difficult, like coordinating upgrades, but it's also what gives it its resilience. Okay, so what about the term intrinsic value itself? I've heard some, pe- some people say the term itself is nonsense because nothing has intrinsic value. Well, yeah, Austrian e- economists would say value is subjective. There's, there's no intrinsic value. Objects in the universe, uh, they require kind of someone doing value-er, uh, for there to be a value assessment, right? So, you know, before humans came along, you know, n- no, nothing that existed on Earth had a, a financial value, right? And, and we were the ones that, um, you know, foisted that value upon those things, uh, not to get super philosophical about it. But, you know, if you look at stocks, for instance, stocks are assumed to have some intrinsic value because they are a claim on a discounted set of cash flows, you know, effectively uh, dividends, uh, which should accrue to the shareholder. So you can add up those dividends and back out a financial valuation of that stock, which I guess makes sense. And so then people look at Bitcoin, they say, well, there are no cash flows. You know, there's no dividends. There's nothing even remotely resembling that. So it can't have value. And I think that's fine. You know, Bitcoin's value comes from the market. So it's, it's quite pure. The value comes from the fact that people desire to use it as a means of exchange and uh, a means of wealth storage for the long term. Uh, so in, in a sense, the fact that Bitcoin has value is, is quite magical. You know, at some point it went from zero to one. You know, it was worth nothing and then it was worth something. And it's been worth something for over 10 years now. 
So I would say that that's actually more resilient and that's kind of a sounder basis of value than relying on some external cash flows as the thing that is the value giver, you know? So I don't, I'm, I'm not that persuaded by the no intrinsic value argument. I mean, you could also say gold has no intrinsic value. Gold is just valued because uh, civilization, you know, places some monetary value on the existence of a, of a monetary commodity. Um, it sounds circular, but um, these things are valued because society at large finds their traits to be valuable. And their value is whatever somebody is willing to buy off off you from. So if you go onto an exchange right now, the price will be around $8,600. That is the value of Bitcoin. Intrinsic value doesn't come into it. It's whether someone's willing to buy from you. That's right. I mean, some people, you know, Aswath Damodaran, who's a well-known uh, maven of equity valuation, says Bitcoin is a currency and currencies cannot be valued. They can only be priced. You know, maybe that's a bit of a semantic quibble, but... Yeah, Bitcoin has a, a price 24 hours a day. Uh, it's always evident. So the, there can really not be that much negotiation over what it's worth. What it's worth, you can find that out just by looking at the price. Well, maybe the next point then is to talk about volatility because that price is volatile. We've seen it in the in the previous week drop around 20%. We've seen times in the market where it's shot up, it's shot down. So if Bitcoin is so volatile, it can't ever really perform the role of money. Yeah, so this is actually probably the number one critique that you'll hear from economists in the context of Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin has an interesting characteristic in that there is no supply elasticity of demand. So what does that mean? That means that if there's a lot of demand that rushes into Bitcoin, the supply can't really respond to that. Now, if you think about in the context of gold, let's say a lot of people want to get exposure to gold, the price of gold goes up. Uh, what happens is people start to mine a little bit more gold because it starts to be really profitable to mine gold. So the rate of gold production increases slightly. It doesn't increase a lot, but increases a little bit. So that's supply elasticity. Now, Bitcoin doesn't have this characteristic because Bitcoin has a difficulty adjustment, which I'm sure has been covered by other guests in the series, basically meaning that Bitcoin is issued at a very predictable rate regardless of how much effort is being put into creating it. So what that means is that all new demand, demand shocks, demand e increases or, or decreases, those are reflected in the, in the market cap solely through the, the vector of, of price. So there's no monetary base expansion in response to new demand. Now, if you compare that to sovereign currencies, for instance, um, sovereign currencies almost never appreciate. Uh, that's not really the mandate of the central banks that manage them. Uh, so if there's a whole bunch of new demand as evidenced by GDP growth, the central banks will just issue more of the sovereign currency. But that can't happen with Bitcoin. right? There's no central bank that says, wow, the mm -hmm. Bitcoin economy has grown. Let's issue more Bitcoin. That doesn't happen. So because Bitcoin is you know, so totally predictable in its issuance. So what this means is that Bitcoin is super volatile, maybe more volatile than any asset of its size, because of this uh, supply inflexibility. And uh, lots of people say, well, if you want a monetary base asset, you know, if you want to make loans denominated in this asset, 
it's not going to work because the thing's too volatile. There's no predictability. You don't know what it's going to be worth a year from now or six months from now. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that it can never serve as the basis of trade uh, and it can never be a reserve asset, which is, you know, it's, it's actually not a bad point. I would say it's a fairly convincing point. Uh, the challenge to Bitcoin is would be to, to show that maybe over time Bitcoin's volatility will decrease. I can't guarantee that's going to happen. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the most compelling points against Bitcoin. You know, that said, people still find it useful to hold and use Bitcoin despite the volatility. So you could say that the volatility is the cost. It's the trade-off you have to make to get access to the system. And there's no way to manage the volatility. So that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Do we have to consider liquidity with relation to volatility? Well, there's no guarantee that more liquidity tamps down volatility. Bitcoin's been super volatile from inception. It's still, I think its annualized volatility is over 100% right now. Feel free to fact check me on that. And it's super liquid. But, you know, the, the problem is that Bitcoin has this unique supply characteristic. So new demand movements are... Uh, perfectly manifested in price. So I, I would say that maybe the creation of um, de- derivatives and, and futures markets, which give participants more ways, more creative ways to express their views on Bitcoin, that might help with volatility somewhat. Allowing miners to hedge might help a little bit. But um, I can't, you know, I can't sit here and guarantee that Bitcoin's volatility is going to decrease. Okay. And so are you really saying with this that volatility is a fair criticism of, well, it's a fair area of debate regarding to Bitcoin, but really because of the unique characteristics of Bitcoin, that is something that might be something people accept to to gain those benefits by holding the asset. Well, I, I think it's a, a young monetary asset, right? We, we've never really seen a new monetary commodity uh, become monetized in real time uh, like we have with Bitcoin. You know, gold, its monetization process took thousands of years. I'll point out that gold was was super volatile in the 70s after uh, the gold standard was abolished uh, in the U.S. So I don't think that volatility is anything intrinsically wrong with a financial asset. Plenty of assets that we use every day are volatile. Oil is super volatile, right? Uh, And there's trillions of dollars of oil floating around. So it's not a disqualifying feature. It just means that, you know, maybe as a base uh, kind of reserve asset, uh, Bitcoin has some ways to go uh, before, you know, people are comfortable, you know, saving in it. But, you know, that said, there is a Bitcoin economy. People do save. Some people make loans in Bitcoin terms. You know, these things happen. So I think it's just a necessary cost you have to bear. There's no way to escape it. And if you want to avoid volatility, then you should prefer sovereign currencies but that desire to suppress volatility is what a lot of people would say is the cause of financial crises. You know, so and and in fact, it makes them worse when they occur. So, to me, it's kind of an unnatural thing to try and suppress natural volatility. I think it only leads to kind of worse crises down the line. Okay. So the next thing we're going to talk about is one of the first things that, when I got into Bitcoin, made me question it which is that Bitcoin doesn't scale. And I had to go through that journey of considering altcoins and alternative projects and their proposals for faster, cheaper transactions. So that is quite a common thing. And we've lost some good people to to this area of debate. 
yeah, and I'm not going to be able to give it a full treatment here. Um, well, we've I've covered this on previous shows, so in the history okay. we covered the scaling debate, but a short Nick Carter version would be very useful. So I'm going to give you a pretty different answer than what most people would would tell you actually here. Right. So in my view, I think the scaling problem is a misstated problem. Um, not to say that it's not a problem, but I think the way we normally think about it is wrong. We kind of use the wrong words to describe it. If you really think about what Bitcoin is at its core, we're talking about a ledger you know, a, a history of transactions and a current uh, state of transactions, the UTXO set, which are replicated to tens of thousands of computers worldwide. So the hierarchy of the system is flat, right? Everybody has the same ability to, to validate every transaction because each transaction that's included in the ledger is replicated out to every member of the system. And what this means is that you have to design the system such that the people with the worst internet connections and you know the most mediocre computer hardware can still be valid participants in that system. Because if you don't, you're just creating a system which is like Venmo or PayPal, where you have one super node that basically controls everything. So Bitcoin, by its very nature, was designed to be flat in hierarchy. And so in the context of that, like we have real physical limits on how much data can be pushed through band, you know, through the pipes that we've built, basically, uh, the limits are bandwidth. Uh, they're computational limits in terms of how much work your computer can effectively do per unit time. How much data can be written to a disk? Uh, oh, yeah, and there's storage limits, right? There's like hard drives only store so much information. In practice, the the bottleneck for Bitcoin and for cryptocurrencies generally is the disk writing activity. So it's just you have to write lots of data to the disk to get up to the current chain tip. And you know, there's not a lot that can be done about that. There, there's just a certain threshold where if you exceed that, normal hardware cannot validate the state of the ledger. And now, if you want everybody to be able to validate the ledger up to the chain tip and get that UTXO set in a trust-minimized way... You know, you have to design it such that the data requirements are not so great. So Bitcoin just passed 300 gigabytes of data. That's actually not a lot, and that's very deliberate, right? Nobody wants the blockchain to be terabytes and terabytes. Uh, I can attest to the fact that if you get a blockchain which is the size of EOS or Ripple, you're going to have an extremely hard time as an individual actually validating that ledger. And this is a a genuine problem. We've reached these limits with some other blockchain systems, so they've demonstrated to us that there is a limit uh, where normal folks can can run a full node and validate the chain. Now, if you throw out those requirements, if you say, "Well, we actually, you know, we can delegate that trust to certain entities to do the validation for us," then you're not subject to those requirements. But that's a totally different trust model. At that point, you're just back to the old trust model of trusting banks and central banks. Right, so we're trying to do something new here. We're trying to do something interesting and new, which is allow normal folks to be equal participants in the system. So that's a very long preamble. I promise we'll get to scalability here. So, you know, the way that blockchains work is, you know, everybody is ingesting the latest changes to the ledger uh, all the time. What that means in practice in Bitcoin is, you know about um, a maximum of 2.4 megabytes of new data every 10 minutes. 
and that kind of works out to maybe you know four-ish transactions per second, there really is a, a limit there. And to call this a problem is, I think, to be a, a little dismissive of what we're accomplishing here, which is allowing the entire world to to come to agreement over this the state of a transactional uh, ledger. And so I don't think we're ever going to be able to magically expand the amount of data that uh, our, our computers can ingest uh, at you know per unit of time. Uh, of course, computer technology gets better, but it doesn't get it won't get better by a factor of a million in the next ten years, right? So we're not going to be able to get you know normal devices to ingest a gigabyte for every ten minutes in the in the in the near future, right? So that's not going to happen. So in the context of bandwidth being expensive, you know, hard drives being expensive, and hard drives being able to only write so much information per unit of time, there are just inherent limitations to a system like that. Now, of course, you can design an alternative system where you have like 10 nodes that are trusted. That's kind of how EOS or Ripple works, right? And they have to work that way because normal folks wouldn't be able to participate. Uh, but that's a completely different system. That's basically the old system, right? Where we have banks or, or you know, trusted service providers, uh, and and that's the root of all the problems. That's why we, you know, Bitcoin is created as a reaction to that. So, anyway, extremely long-winded. I think the scalability problem is essentially misstated. And now I do think there are ways to improve the efficiency. You know, to bundle more information into those bytes, which everybody has to store, so that those are your scalability quote-unquote solutions or enhancements. But the, 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 there is an essential constraint here. That's my point. So really, the, the solution that these alternative cryptocurrencies use when they're attacking Bitcoin and they're saying, well, Bitcoin is slow, Bitcoin is expensive, we have on-chain scaling, they're really trying to solve the problem of allowing small-value, high-volume transactions. We often talk about the, the cup of coffee, but really you don't want a blockchain for this purpose. Yeah, absolutely not. And and why would you? I mean, uh, why would you want to store uh, your coffee transaction on the nodes of every participant in perpetuity? Uh, you know, in an immutable way. To me, that seems totally misaligned. Right? If we're if we're gonna force this information onto every node for every participant in the system, you better hope that it's an important transaction. And now, that's not to be dismissive of small value transactions. It's just that. For low-stakes transactions, you can bundle those together, all right? And then you can have larger settlement transactions. So Lightning kind of works this way. Uh, side chains kind of work this way. So that's the idea. And this is how it's always worked in the payments industry. You don't have one ledger which records every transaction. You have many, many different ledgers with a hierarchy. So in the normal payments industry, you have uh, systems like Fedwire, where the average settlement transaction is in the millions of dollars. You have SWIFT. You know, these are big transactions. And then you have you know, sub-ledgers where uh, you know, PayPal maintains their own internal ledger, and then they periodically settle up with banks and credit unions and so on. Right? So you have this deferred settlement idea. Uh, and, and this is totally normal. Uh, credit cards kind of work like this. You don't settle up after every single transaction. You have a deferred settlement. And so the various systems that people are building on Bitcoin for scalability, they embrace the same idea of deferred settlement with periodic settlement transactions. 
I think that's the way it's going to work. That's the way it's, it's basically always worked. Uh, and that's mindful of the fact that you want to reserve the ledger for larger, more important transactions. Exactly. It's not like the biggest thing that Bitcoin can solve is to improve e-commerce and uh, improve the buying and selling of goods online. It's actually to create better money and, money and get away from the fuckery of central banks. It would be great if Bitcoin could service all of the tiniest transactions out there, but that would require making everyone aware of uh, even the smallest transaction, you know, from talking from billions of people on Earth. Uh, so because we want to retain this flat hierarchy and make all these nodes equal partners in the network, we have to restrict the amount of data that's going into the system. And that's totally fine. That's a new system. I think it's great. It's just that okay. we're going to have to do a little bit of work to figure out how to build uh, trust-minimized deferred settlement systems on top of that. Also, if people want to find out a little bit more about altcoins and alternative projects, if they're thinking of investing in those because they do believe in on-chain scaling, I would recommend go and check out the other show I did with Nick. Altcoins, a history of failure, my provocative title to wrap around Nick's great content. But if you didn't listen, go and check that one out because I think you'll learn a few lessons there from alternative projects. Next up, I talked to Nick more about Bitcoin FUD, but before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. And do you know what? You might be thinking of skipping these ads, but the sponsors allow me to do this. So maybe give them a listen. Just give them a bit of your time. Go and check out their websites. So first up, let's talk about consensus when everyone will be descending into New York for beers and Bitcoin. I've been for the last two years, always had a great time. Always great to hang out with people and catch up. Consensus always manages to bring some of the biggest names from both in and outside of the industry. We've had Hester Pierce, Brian Armstrong, Jack Dorsey. Last year, I think it was Andrew Yang. So we're always getting great people into the city. From keynote speakers to the evening parties, Consensus is a great opportunity to learn about the latest in Bitcoin and hang out with some of your friends in the industry. This year will be no different. They've already announced speakers including... Elise Killeen, Caitlin Long, Zach Prince, Serge Cotlier, and Will Reeves, a bunch of Bitcoiners, and there's going to be some more coming soon, which is super cool. As I said, I've been there the last two years. I will be there this year. If you want to hang out, you want to grab a beer, talk about Bitcoin, then make sure you are in New York for this year's event. They also have a discount for listeners of this show. If you want to get yourself a ticket, if you use the code BitcoinDid, you can get $200 off your ticket. So if you want to find out more, head over to consensus2020.com, which is C-O-N-S-E-N-S-U-S-2020.com. Also, I've got another new sponsor this week, and these guys are cool. I met them out in Uruguay. It's Sat Street. Got a very cool idea, very cool product out in the market. They're trying to make it easier for you to send Bitcoin to your friends and family. With Sat Street, you can gift Bitcoin by email. You can even send as little as one Sat for free. I mean, I don't recommend it because... Yeah, one sat isn't worth anything, but you can do that. They've built it so you can do whatever you want. You can send however much you want to your friends. But not only that, Sat Street gives you ways to earn Bitcoin by bringing together all the top referral programs in the industry in one place. Sat Street will reward you for every person you invite that earns Bitcoin. Newcomers get to learn about Bitcoin and earn sats at the same time, and you get rewarded by helping grow the network. So you don't get much cooler than that, right? If you want to stack some more sats, get your friends on board, get them using Sat Street. Find out more at satstreet.com, which is S-A-T-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. And lastly, but by no means least, this week we have Coin Tracker. And do you know what? 
these are the tax guys, right? And I've had a bit of flag. I've had some people saying, what are you doing supporting tax? You're anti-Bitcoin. Look, the reality is it's optional. You can pay your tax if you want and you can avoid it if you want. But if you avoid it, you got to face the reality of what that might mean. We know exchanges are being subpoenaed for customer information. So look, it's up to you. I pay my tax. I don't want to. I think it's bullshit, but I do pay it. So what I've decided with this one as well, I spoke to Chandon about this. I spoke to him about some of the responses I was getting. I was like, look, come on the show. Tell people about this. Tell them some of the horror stories you've heard. When I was in San Francisco, I met up and he told me some. So like, let's do it. Let's get it on. But I have used coin tracker this year to calculate my tax it was super easy plugged in my wallets plugged in my exchanges and within two minutes my taxes were calculated for me it works for the us uk and canada if you've got fewer than 200 transactions it's free to use and for listeners of the podcast you can also get a 10 percent discount by using the link cointracker.io forward slash a forward slash wbd they do have an app which is available in the apple and android stores but the main software is on the website. Just head over to Cointracker.io, which is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.io. The, the next thing I do want to cover, though, is something I know you've looked at. So I've covered this in previous shows, talking about the block subsidy for miners. I've talked about, I think I did this with Dan Held when we talked about Bitcoin's monetary policy. But we have a halving every four years. The block subsidy is reducing I think it's 2140, we estimate the the block subsidy will end. But on that path, the block subsidy is getting smaller. I think in May, we estimate around May 20, so May this year, that we'll have another halving. We go down to 6.25 Bitcoin and, and so on every four years. As the block subsidy drops, the miners are going to increasingly rely on probably transaction fees. But there are people out there saying, well, there's not going to be enough transactions. So there's not going to be enough transaction fees for the miners. Therefore, the miners aren't going to be able to provide the security. Therefore, Bitcoin won't have security. I know you've looked at this, right? Yeah. And so I gave a talk at the MIT Bitcoin Expo in 2019, I believe, possibly 2018, discussing the various ways that people have described this problem. And you know, this is probably the number one critique you'll hear of Bitcoin from sophisticated people that have looked at the system. And so what Bitcoin is trying to do here is something really quite audacious, which is to create a monetary system which is effectively capped and where there is no permanent inflation, right? And every other monetary system that exists, there's some amount of inflation, either to encourage people to spend um, it's considered to be a good feature by the kind of dominant economic theory. So Bitcoin is responding to this. It says, no, we want everyone to know exactly what their stake in the system is in perpetuity. We want it to be predictable. We don't want to have inflation. So, But how does Bitcoin you know, stomach this cost? Because Bitcoin needs to pay the miners. So the miners were paid out of the issuance, out of the block subsidy for the, you know, for the early issuance for the, the bootstrapping phase of the network. But then as Bitcoin you know, matures, the issuance is going to decline. As you say, it, it declines by half every four years, and it eventually declines to almost nothing. So I think something like 85% of all the Bitcoins uh, have already been issued. And so when the subsidy is gone, we're going to rely on fees to pay the miners. And now people say, well, actually, if you do the math, you know, 4,000 transactions per block and 144 blocks per day and fees right now are only a couple cents. So uh, you, you add that all up and you get a 
uh, a minor revenue which is less than the current minor revenue because today's minor revenue is derived mostly from the subsidy, from the fact that each Bitcoin block produces 12 and a half new Bitcoins. So, you know, people are nervous about this. And the, the claim is that the fees, uh, the fee-driven model of security will be unstable in some way. Uh, the security itself will be volatile because the fees might change. You know, there might be congestion at some times, no congestion at others. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, a school of thought where, you know, there's a, well, m- not within Bitcoin, but uh, supporters of other coins will say, well, we should just add permanent inflation. Maybe we should have 2%, per- 2% inflation every year uh, to pay for the security of the system. Now, it seems to me that um, Satoshi really did intend Bitcoin to be capped in its issuance at $21 million. Uh, If you look at the first post where he's describing the Bitcoin system on Bitcoin.org, he kind of lists the essential features of the system. One of them is that it's capped in supply. Uh, you know, only 21 million units will ever exist. So if you change the issuance, I think that's, I don't actually believe that that's Bitcoin anymore. I know some people will disagree with me, but uh, I think one of the things that Satoshi intended Bitcoin to mean was, you know, a system with, with the number of preordained units that he'd written into the code. So I don't believe that that's Bitcoin. Now, it may be the case that, you know, a more functional or better system is one that has uh, inflation. Uh, that may well be the case. We, that might be something that we learn. I don't think that'll be Bitcoin. So I, I would say it is inherent to Bitcoin that the supply is capped. Now, the question is, can we tune the system such that it provides an appropriate amount of security to miners? The problem is we actually don't know what the correct amount of security is, right? There's, there's not been any consensus as to, well, miners should be earning this or that. And the truth is that Bitcoin worked fine when miners were earning a tiny amount back when Bitcoin was worth very little, and it works fine now. So nobody has an answer as to what the correct amount of security should be. And so we still have a lot of work to do in terms of trying to determine how much security is appropriate. Now, I happen to think that as long as Bitcoin is considered a valuable way to send money, there's always going to be demand to fill the blocks, right? And I think we're going to get better and better at compressing those transactions into smaller and smaller informational payloads, which are included on the ledger. Um, And so as long as we do that, and as long as there's still demand to use Bitcoin, there's always going to be people that are willing to pay fees to transact. And it's not that difficult to do the math and back out a, a state of affairs where the minor revenue is, is roughly similar to what it is today just from fees. Now, some people might say, oh, no, people will just use alternative blockchains. They don't like the high fees. I think there's something that's unique about Bitcoin block space. I certainly happen to think there's something special about it relative to other blockchains. I think the security provides... Uh, is better. I think the system overall is more credible. And so I do think people will value that in the long term. But it's certainly an open question what the level of fees is going to be, whether it's sufficient. I would say this is um, probably one of the best critiques. Uh, but to be frank, nobody knows. So lots of people will say, oh, well, we know that Bitcoin's security is going to be insufficient in the future. And then you ask them, well, what is a sufficient, what, what constitutes sufficiency to you? 
what is your security model? What's your model of, of, uh, of security of a proof-of-work blockchain? And they don't have an answer. So I would say both the, the doomsday theorists that believe that the system is inevitably, you know, inevitably going to collapse uh, in, you know, 20 years from now, and both the super optimists who say, I'm certain that the security is going to be fine. I'd say they're probably both wrong, right? And you know, maybe this isn't the answer that, that people would want me to give here, but I happen to believe that as long as Bitcoin is a, a valuable and useful system, there's almost always going to be some level of, of fees in there as people are, are willing to transact and, and happy to pay for the privilege. And so I happen to believe that there, there will be some revenue for miners in the long term. The question is how much and what constitutes sufficiency. And there's no firm cutoff date. We have essentially blocks of four-year cycles to see the block subsidy drop, see whether there's an increase in fees to actually kind of monitor this and, and, and see how the system evolves over these halvings. Yeah, so if you look today, the daily fees are about $215,000. Um, so you might say that's not a lot. You might think that's a lot. It's certainly a lot less than the subsidy-driven minor revenue. The subsidies are dropping the fees will inevitably grow as a percentage of minor revenue. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of building in these, uh, you can call them second layer, I might call them deferred deferred settlement systems. Uh, those are what allow us to package, uh, they kind of basically give Bitcoin more bang for its buck, right? You package many, many transactions into one single base layer transaction. That means you can amortize those fees across many transactions. And to me, that means it's more likely that people would be willing to pay higher fees for block space. If you think about lightning, closing a lightning channel, if you have 100,000 transactions in that lightning channel and you do one periodic settlement to the base layer, that to me, that means that people would be able to, or willing to tolerate a higher level of fees uh, because th- this single on-chain transaction is accounting for many, many off-chain transactions, right? So if we can build systems like that, that build on top of this base layer, uh, that extend the block space in, in interesting ways, I think that means that uh, it's much more likely that there's kind of a robust uh, block space market at maturity. So I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this. Good, good. And also in there, you talked about the 21 million hard cap. Now, people often refer to this as deflationary, and I was taught in economics that deflation is bad. With deflation, people start spending, they start saving, as things will be cheaper in the future, and therefore this causes the economy to grind to a halt. Therefore, if Bitcoin is deflationary, it is bad economics. Yeah, that's um, that's certainly the that's something we've heard a lot of times. Um, I would probably object to the framing, actually, so... Bitcoin is only deflationary if the Bitcoin economy is growing faster than the supply of money. Uh, so I know that's I'm quibbling a little bit here, but um, you know, deflation is a situation where um, money uh, becomes more expensive, you know, and and the price of goods falls in real terms. If if uh, the Bitcoin economy were to shrink. Bitcoin wouldn't be deflationary at that point. Um, again, s- semantic uh, debate. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's monetary uh, system, uh, technically speaking, is disinflationary, right? It has uh, issuance and then the issuance declines over time. 
And then the problem is, lots of economists will tell you this, well, if you have uh, an economy with debts denominated in that unit, if the unit is becoming more and more valuable over time, uh, people's debt load becomes really big over time. And so in, typically in, in Western economies, we do the inverse. We have inflation so that people's debt load becomes less in real terms over time. And that this is meant to be a good thing. It's meant to encourage people to you know, take out loans and spend. You know, lots of Bitcoins totally object to this. They say this is a Keynesian idea. Uh, we don't need to encourage people to spend. They'll just spend to buy goods naturally. You know, there's a natural rate of expenditure. We don't need to uh, encourage them specifically to do it. Uh, but to be frank, all of that is besides the point. The world is not denominated in Bitcoin today. So this isn't really a problem because nobody is really making or taking Bitcoin-denominated loans. And that's where the problem comes in, right? So I wouldn't say that's an issue. That's almost like if Bitcoin is a wild success and every transaction is denominated in Bitcoin, maybe this becomes an issue. For Bitcoin to be relevant, I don't think it has to underscore all global commerce, right? I just I think it has to be a valid alternative monetary system that coexists with other systems. Uh, so this the, the framing this question like presupposes that Bitcoin has achieved prominence as the world's you know sole monetary asset. And I don't think anybody really thinks that's particularly likely. So yeah, I, I, I find it a kind of a strange question to ask. It's like, well, what if all credit is denominated in Bitcoin? Well, at that point, Bitcoin is an unbelievable wild success, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. This is a, a lot of people's favorite subject I'm going to cover now. And I've uh, I've covered this recently, especially on my other show, Defiance. I've been looking at climate change and whether it's human caused. But I think you I think you particularly like this subject, that Bitcoin is boiling the oceans and killing polar bears. The amount of energy used by the miners to provide security to the network. I don't know what country we're at now. Have we? Was it Ukraine we've surpassed now? Or, or yeah, I, I don't keep I, track. Some, no, some but, uh, small nation, yeah. But Bitcoin's uh, annual energy use is surpassing that of certain nations. And people say that this is wasteful and this is leading to the boiling of the oceans and the, the killing of the polar bears. Yeah, so Satoshi actually anticipated this way back in the day, you know, in, in 2009, I believe, uh, talking about gold. So Satoshi made reference to gold quite a few times, even in the white paper, and this is telling, I think, in, in terms of the way that Satoshi at least thought about Bitcoin, not saying this is the absolute truth or anything, but um, I think it's a good way to think about it. So what Satoshi said, I'm paraphrasing, was, you know, it's costly and some people even might say wasteful to get all this mechanical equipment and dig gold out of the ground, right? Uh, some people might think that's wasteful. It's like, what do you? What? It's just an inert rock. You're digging it out of the ground, and then you put it in a vault, and you, you know, look at it. And um, Satoshi says, you know, people value gold, and so even though that activity is is wasteful, uh, not having gold would be the net waste, because gold has this quite profound uh, use, which is a, a non-sovereign way to store value and a, a universal way to to demarcate value, right? And so Satoshi certainly envisioned Bitcoin to be something similar, an asset which is outside the control of the state, uh, which is global, which is transmissible, 
uh, you know, natively digital. Uh, so that's something special and new that didn't exist in 2000, before 2009. So the fact that we're allocating energy to creating new units of Bitcoin, that's what miners do. Uh, they, they put lots of effort into it. Um, some people might say that's a waste, but to me, it's a totally moot point. You know, if it's worth having Bitcoin, and, and the world certainly seems to think so, this 200 billion or so, roughly speaking, uh, worth of capital, which is, you know, uh, represented by Bitcoin. So the world is placing a non zero value on the thing. That is a signifier that the world considers the thing to be important and valuable. And it's been growing, you know, steadily for the last 10 years. Uh, so, the fact that there is some energy or cost required to create those units that you could you could characterize that as wasteful, but at the same time, um, the world values the existence of the thing. So, not having it would be the waste. And um, you know, th- there aren't very many non-state monetary systems or monetary alternatives. Uh, so, I think it's it's good and important that Bitcoin exists. And so I'm, I'm very happy to tolerate the cost of bringing those Bitcoins into existence. That's something I'm totally okay with. Now, the question is, you know, what are the externalities of bringing them into existence? You know, what are the costs that are foisted on the world in return for creating those Bitcoins? And, um, you know, some people would say they're quite significant. You know, there's carbon emissions, right? Uh, some Bitcoin is mined with coal. But the truth is, Lots of Bitcoin is mined with hydro. Part of the reason for this is China actually really overbuilt their hydro capacity uh, in places where there was no population nearby. And the thing about electricity is you lose it as you transport over great distance. So if you're trying to transport electricity over hundreds of miles, it's going to be a very lossy transmission. So what you end up is these pockets of energy creation, uh, which that energy gets wasted if you can't you know, transport it to a city for people to use it. And so they call that curtailment, right? So you have this otherwise curtailed sources of energy. And so one of the biggest ones is hydro, uh, which, you know, effectively people will just release the water from the dam if there's no one to consume it, right? Once the dam gets full. Uh, So this is one of the reasons why there's so much Bitcoin production in China is because China overbuilt there's all this spare energy capacity, and then some smart entrepreneurs realized that they could put that to use for mining Bitcoin. So to me, that's actually a, a really positive thing. We had this energy which was going to be wasted, and instead we used it to create this monetary commodity. You know, that's pretty cool to me, right? Um, mm-hmm. And hydro, there's no significant climate impact of of running a uh, you know a dam, hydroelectric dam. Now. You know, undeniably, some Bitcoin is mined with coal. The estimates on this differ. This, it's actually quite hard to get a reliable estimate on the energy mix of Bitcoin uh, because um, because miners tend to be quite secretive. But ultimately, I think it's a system which lots of people value. So it's hard to call that wasteful. You can look at plenty of other systems that seem trivial. Uh, you know, watching Netflix putting up Christmas lights, you know, anything really, civilization uses energy. So to complain about a single usage of energy and to ignore all the other ways energy is used, often in many more trivial ways, uh, it seems to me like people are just, they want a reason to complain about Bitcoin. 
You know, there's plenty and plenty of ways out there that people use electricity frivolously. I happen to think the Bitcoin is actually one of the most serious things that we can do with our electricity. But uh, some people are just natural opponents of Bitcoin, and you know they're not taking the broader tack there. They just um, they fixate on these uh, electricity figures and and they use it as a stick to bash Bitcoin with. I released a show yesterday with the CEO of Buda, a South American Bitcoin exchange, and they've just announced that they're the first exchange to allow you to offset your carbon footprint from your Bitcoin purchases on their exchange. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. That's quite funny. Yeah, so there's there's some other things I didn't talk about here where there's a growing industry where people take otherwise vented uh, methane from uh, from mining because the oftentimes mining releases methane as a byproduct and they combust that methane and they use it to run a generator and they mine Bitcoin with that. There's, I, I'm aware of you know, three or four um, entrepreneurs doing this. And the thing about methane is it's about 30 times worse than, than carbon dioxide in terms of um, uh, its environmental externalities. And so that's actually a net improvement. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the broader concept here. Bitcoin is a buyer of energy at a fixed price globally, regardless of where you are. And energy is distributed across the globe in little pockets. And oftentimes it's wasted when you can't get it to population centers. So what we have now is a situation where many entrepreneurs are taking these excess sources of energy and deploying it into Bitcoin. It just so happens that in many cases, these are green sources of energy generation, uh, or, or they, they actually ameliorate the, the, uh, the climate change situation as with, with the methane that would be otherwise vented. So Bitcoin is a buyer of energy globally. It doesn't really care what you're using to mine it. This means that in practice, it's mined with otherwise vented methane. It's mined, in some cases, with wind and solar. I don't think that's a huge part, but uh, in some cases, it's mined with geothermal. And, and, and you know a huge fraction of the network is mined with otherwise curtailed hydroelectric. So it's quite an interesting situation if you really look into it. And I think the critics probably don't uh, spend enough time taking a serious look at it. Fantastic. Good answer, Nick. Okay, cool. couple of things left. Another one which is quite popular. This is often used by the, the Bitcoin haters, usually the government central bank people. And they claim that Bitcoin is just used by terrorists and criminals. But we know this isn't true, right? Well, yeah, we, we know this is not true. You know, I, I look at what Bitcoin is used for every day. That's what my startup does. We evaluate the various uh, usage types of Bitcoin to try and get some ground truth there. But, you know, the, the broader point here is that anything the government doesn't like from a transactional perspective, they will claim it's used by evil people. And in some sense... That's true. You, you can't stop evil people using your system if it's an open system, right? That's uh, it's if you know we've Bitcoin exists now. It's permissionless, so anybody can have access to it. We have to tolerate uh, evil people using the system, people we don't like. That's the that's basically the cost of doing business here, right? You and I think you know governments have become very accustomed to using the financial system as an enforcement mechanism to enforce against crimes that they don't like. Instead of actually going after the crimes themselves, they go after the money. So this is what sanctions are, right? 
the government doesn't want to go to war. Instead of going to war, they just cut off a whole country's financial infrastructure and they tell everyone to stop doing business with them. So it's very convenient for them to use the financial rails as an alternative to force. But I think this means that governments also get very lazy. So instead of going after crimes now, they just go after the bank accounts of criminals. And they say, well, if you if you strip away our ability to surveil every single transaction, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. And my response to that is, well, tough. You know, go actually prosecute these crimes. Go do some investigation instead of just lazily re- relying on the, the financial system to enforce against this. And in the U.S., at least, since 1970, you know, since the Bank Secrecy Act was passed, the surveillance capacity of the government in the context of financial transactions has increased massively. And we actually have it pretty good here in the U.S. compared to China, where virtually everything is surveilled from a financial perspective. And I don't really want to live in a world where every single class of activity is wholly surveilled. To me, that's, uh, that's, a, a, that's a situation where individual liberty is not present anymore. Because if someone has control over your finances, they can control your life. And we've seen this happen. So in 2013, the Department of Justice had this, uh, this operation called Operation Choke Point, where they used uh, the FDIC to pressure banks to deplatform businesses that they didn't like. These weren't businesses that had committed any crimes. They were just businesses in insalubrious uh, use cases. So, you know, payday lending, uh, things like that. And so the government unconstitutionally went after these businesses through the vector of the banking system. And in fact, what happened was they, uh, they actually lost in court. This was proven to be unconstitutional. It was against the Fourth Amendment. It was a violation of due process because no crime had been committed. But so this shows the government's eagerness uh, to use the banking and the financial system to apply leverage to things they don't like. And... I, I would much prefer to live in a world where there is some transactional privacy, right? And that's what cash gives us, physical cash. We have autonomy and we have privacy when we use cash. That's not really present in a digital context. Bitcoin promises to potentially restore that, that standard of autonomy and privacy that we enjoy with cash, but in a digital format. And of course, the cost there is that, you know, it's permissionless and it's open and, and evil people will use it. I think that's a cost that society should bear because the alternative is much, much worse. The alternative is one where we have no individual liberty whatsoever. But if the government can't track it, Nick, they will just ban Bitcoin and we won't be able to use it anyway. They're welcome to try. They're welcome to try. <laughs> China's tried. They have, but um, you know, people still use Bitcoin in China. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I think banning Bitcoin... In the West means suspending property rights. You know, Bitcoin is treated as property in the U.S. according to the IRS. If they ban Bitcoin, if they uh, Trump somehow try and eminent domain everyone's Bitcoin or or perform civil asset forfeiture on everyone's Bitcoin, that's violating the property rights of millions and millions of Americans. You know, obviously, I'm I'm just talking from an America perspective here. That's something that. Um, is, is pretty contrary to at least American values. So maybe authoritarian states can do that, but um, I don't think it would fly here in the U.S. I think their, their opportunity to ban Bitcoin has passed, although you know they can certainly apply pressure to exchanges and so on. But again, that's a, a pretty easy way to destroy innovation 
push all that tax base uh, and all that um, you know, productive financial base overseas. I don't see why the U.S. would want to do that either. What about with regards to the protocol itself and the code? We know essentially Bitcoin is just a big pile of code, a big pile of code that's been developed over a number of years by the developers. Could a catastrophic bug destroy Bitcoin? Could developers install a backdoor? And what is the incentive structure for developers to keep developing Bitcoin? Yeah, well, there is no you know strict incentive structure. You know, they're not compensated by Bitcoin or anything. The way it works with the most high-profile developers is there's a patronage model where their work is financed by nonprofits and organizations that benefit from the existence of Bitcoin. And for the most part, these core developers have free reign, you know, so they can work on whatever uh, aspect of the protocol they want. Um, and luckily, we're in a state of affairs where there's you know six or seven um, you know well-financed organizations that support core developers. Uh, so this is a priority um, for the Bitcoin community, and we're very lucky that this is the case. So, you know, you've got Square Crypto, uh, you got Blockstream, you have Chaincode. I know Zoppo funds a developer. I believe Bitmex does. Uh, several other exchanges, the MIT DCI. So all these organizations pay developers to work on Bitcoin uh, without very much oversight. Square Crypto is a bit different. They have kind of um, some specific objectives. But um, you know, for the most part, these developers are just being paid to work on Bitcoin and to look for bugs and keep it as secure as possible. So if you actually, if you compare with the way that other cryptocurrencies are administered, it's a very good situation for Bitcoin because there is no corporation that controls the whole thing. There's no foundation that controls the whole thing. So, and, and aside from that, there's a lot of developers that work on Bitcoin just out of the goodness of their own hearts because it's prestigious, because they're interested, because they like Bitcoin. It's a, it's a free and open source kind of development uh, philosophy. And so the way that we ensure that there aren't any catastrophic bugs is just by having a very exhaustive process of peer review and having all the code be open source so that anyone can evaluate it for themselves. And so far, that's served us fairly well. There have been bugs. There have been a number of bugs. Um, the thing to remember is that the values supersede the code. So some people might disagree with me for saying that, but there's a Bitcoin has a has a feature that I would call value primacy. So in the historically, there was a case where there was a, a value overflow bug where. Lots and lots of Bitcoins, I think it was something like 92 billion Bitcoins were accidentally created thanks to a bug. And we didn't just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess there's 92 billion Bitcoins now. What we did was, well, we coordinated a change to uh, delete those and go back to a prior state where the normal schedule was being upheld. So what happened there was the value of having uh, this, this core value inherent to Bitcoin of supply being capped that was upheld at the expense of the code. So, you know, the bugs don't prevail in those situations. Effectively, the social contract prevails uh, because everybody's already bought into this idea of Bitcoin as having these core essential features. So we have value primacy. So if there was a catastrophic bug, my guess is that we would just return, uh, we would figure out how to remediate it and return to kind of the core features of the system. Uh, so we wouldn't give up at that point uh, there is still human involvement in this thing. It's not fully automated. That's fine. You need human stewardship um, for a young, novel protocol. Maybe over time, 
it'll be changes will be much and much more infrequent and maybe at some point the whole system will will solidify and and it'll just be a protocol and there'll be no more alterations but currently there still are you know updates and alterations planned it is a very deliberate and slow process so we haven't really had a significant update to the protocol since segregated witness in 2017 and here we are in 2020 it's not even clear that the next update um Schnorr signatures and taproot will come this year so it is a slow process, but I think that's the trade-off that everyone is okay with in, in terms of making sure that it's secure. All right, the last pet question, last point, is that Satoshi, whoever he, she, they are, is meant to hold a million Bitcoins. And at some point, Satoshi might come out from hiding or come out from wherever they are and dump those coins in the market and crash the price of Bitcoin. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so one thing I will say is that the estimates of Satoshi's coins are not uh, precise. So it's actually, there's a degree of uncertainty. So Sergio Lerner did the first analysis. I think he found 1.2 million. Another other analysis that found stuff in that range. Um, BitMEX Research did an analysis. They found it was closer to 600,000. So it's not clear how many coins were mined by Satoshi. There's you know, about 2.5 million Bitcoins that were mined in 2009, 2010 that haven't really moved. So it could be any number of coins. Nobody really knows whether you know Satoshi is still around or intends to sell their coins. Um, aside from a couple test transactions, Satoshi never really moved any of his coins. So, you know, I if I had to guess, I would say Satoshi was trying to make a point by saying, okay, look, out of necessity, I had an early advantage in terms of mining. I uh, mined a lot of coins, uh, but you know, out of respect for the system, I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to take advantage of my reward. That would be my guess. It's obviously not clear. Maybe those coins will move after 10 years. You know, who knows? Would that kill Bitcoin? I don't think so. I think the market would absorb those coins. You know, who wouldn't want to own some vintage Satoshi coins? I think a lot of people would come online and start buying them up if they knew that Satoshi was dumping. But for sure, that would be. Uh, a significant fraction of supply would probably have an adverse effect price-wise, but um, you know, Bitcoin is volatile anyway in the first place. So if someone were to market sell all those million coins, yeah, the price would probably fall, but uh, it wouldn't be the death of Bitcoin. It would mean that we're, we're free from the influence of the creator. I think that would be a good thing. Well, it's another fantastic show, Nick. Every time you come on, you deliver a lot of high value. I think you've answered these way better than I ever could, and which is why I prefer to ask the questions these days. So thank you again. Yeah, I hope you have a great weekend, and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Just remind people again, if they haven't heard from you on the show before, how do they find you? How do they get in touch? Sure, yeah. The main way would be following me on Twitter. That's N-I-C uh, underscore underscore Carter. Uh, there's two underscores. Um, and uh, you can find me on Medium. I also, I'm uh, now I'm a columnist for CoinDesk, which is a new thing. Wow! Uh, so they, they, so that's actually fun because that means that I have editors telling me that I can't write these five thousand word pieces anymore. I actually have to, you know, make them accessible for normal people. Um, but uh, yeah, you can find me on there as well. And uh, my fund is Castle Island Ventures. Uh, if you have a startup working on cryptocurrency and you'd like seed stage financing, you can reach out to me. Uh, our website is castleisland.vc. That's dot Victor Charlie. And uh, yeah, thanks again for having me on. It's always fun to uh, 
try and condense these issues into bite-sized chunks and always a fun challenge. Great. Well, hopefully the coronavirus won't see the MIT Expo cancelled this year, so hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I love the Expo. It's my favorite Bitcoin conference. So Yeah, me too. I think it's a, a great event. It was my first time last year. Anyway, have a great weekend, Nick. Really appreciate your time. Take care. Thanks very much. All right. How was that? Nick is a beast, right? He absolutely smashed it again, as he always does, as he's done in every single episode of the podcast. And also, Nick is always at hand to me. If I ever got a question, I've got something that's going around in my brain and I need his help, whenever I reach out, Nick is there. He's always got my back. So thanks, Nick. Thanks for everything you've done to support the show and for coming on the show for a second one within the Beginner's Guide. Now, if you haven't also checked out Nick's articles on Medium, I strongly suggest you do. He's one of the, well, possibly the best writer in Bitcoin. Definitely one of my favorites. Up there with Dan Held. I love everything he writes. I love the work he puts into it. Ah, shit, I should have mentioned Tua Demisa as well. He's another one I love. But if you haven't checked out Nick's writing, head over to his medium check out some of his work it really is of the highest quality i really enjoyed this one i always like getting nick on and he certainly helped give me some more ammo for dealing with the fud when i'm out there when i'm on the front lines defending bitcoin to some moron spouting some bullshit now some of the mainstream media is improving some of the reporting is getting better there are still the same old tired arguments from the likes of paul vigner who always wants to attack bitcoin yet will happily put out a press release about ripple but some of the stuff is improving but you will face some crap and you do have the stuff from the other competing projects or the anti-bitcoiners throwing stuff out there so it's really important that you understand their arguments and have the ammo to fight back if you need it you know perhaps you're talking to one of your buddies and and they throw some of this shit at you you just need this ammo to fight back so appreciate nick coming on appreciate him giving us all this ammo and as ever if you've got any questions about this you know you can hit me up my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com if also you want to support the show if you're new and you've just been checking out my beginner's guide or you're a regular listener and you're thinking thanks Pete really appreciate what you're doing really want to show my love and support then go over to my website it's whatbitcoindid.com click on the support section it will explain everything you can do even if you just go on iTunes and leave me a review get me up there make sure I'm ahead of pomp what I want is when people are searching for a Bitcoin podcast, I always want to come ahead of Pomp. I'm very competitive with that guy. So just give me a review and help me with that. <laughs> Only kidding. Love you, Pomp. You know I do. All right. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. As ever, you want to reach out to me, just hit me up. I do reply to almost every message I get unless it's some weird nonsense. Anyway, have a great weekend and I will speak to you soon.